0: up next on Upstate's HealthLink on air we'll hear why the DASH diet gets such high marks as a healthy eating plan and not just for
1: people with high blood pressure what can you change and then what can you sustain after this 12 month study for lifelong don't go on something that you in your back of your mind are saying i'm just going to follow this for a couple weeks
0: then we'll discuss the role of emergency physicians in helping to prevent opioid overdoses
2: it is incumbent upon us to consider the opportunity we have when patients are at their sickest, to not only take care of them and stabilize them, but also to give them the best anticipatory guidance.
0: And we'll learn about the specialty of otolaryngology.
2: Although the specialty is
3: otolaryngology, which is Latin for ear and throat, uh, a lot of people refer to it as otorhinolaryngology to include the nose.
0: All that in a selection from our Healing Muse, coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink air. your chance to explore medicine, science and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk about the role of emergency physicians in helping to prevent opioid overdoses. Then we'll learn about the nation's first medical specialty, otolaryngology. But to begin, we'll hear about a diet designed for people with high blood pressure that can be a healthy way of eating for everyone. Today, we're talking about a diet that is recommended by the USDA and the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute as an ideal eating plan for all Americans. It's called the DASH diet, and in January 2018, it was ranked number one as a best overall diet. Best for Healthy Eating, and Best Heart Healthy Diet by U.S. News & World Report. With me in the studio is Maureen Franklin, a registered dietitian nutritionist at Upstate. I thank you for being here, Maureen. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the name DASH Diet. Why is it called that?
1: Well, what it stands for is Dietary Approach to Stop Hypertension. So a way in terms of nutrition to look at preventing or um, helping to treat and lower your blood pressure.
0: So is it just for people who need... um,
1: blood pressure no i think in terms it is a great guideline for everybody when you know as they said in terms of um how it's rated it is probably one of the easiest best diets for anyone to follow because i think we're all looking to change our health and improve our health no matter where we are in terms of our our medical status so i think it's something for everyone so has it been shown to lower high blood pressure, though? Yes, it has. Mm-hmm. And people who have um, higher levels of blood pressure has been shown that they get um, actually more benefit. So when we're looking at you know, the new changes in terms of blood pressure, it's something great for people to look at as an easy way to say, well, let's start looking at changing my diet and making improvements. And hopefully along the way, I'm going to see improvements in terms of blood pressure and heart health.
0: Now, someone who maybe is taking hypertension medicine, is this a safe diet for them to... Still a safe okay. diet, mm-hmm. And then Definitely. what about someone whose um, blood pressure runs low to begin with? Still that... healthy
1: because what we're talking is we're talking good fruits, good vegetables, whole grains, lean meat. So even for that person, it's still a good heart-healthy guideline. So who came up with this diet? National Heart and Lung and Blood Institute actually came up with it. It's been around for a while. I don't think it gets as much... much publicity as fad diets because it's not a fad diet it's a really good sound basic diet in terms of it Um, and they came up with this a way of saying if we look at just basic diet can we see if we can help people and it's been shown yes it can help.
0: So why does it because it has been around a while and Mm -hmm. it ranks high every every year when people assess diets but why is it that it's such a healthy way of eating? What, what are some of the foods that are part of the DASH diet? Um,
1: some of the foods, they're basic foods when we talk about it. The basic premise is um, increasing your fruits and vegetables, looking at whole grains, using low-fat dairy products, using lean meats, um, using nuts, legumes, seeds. That, again, is something, as a nutrition dietitian, we're always trying to promote to people. Uh, look at your fat intake. And the other part of it, which is we've seen more and more emphasis on is lowering sugary sweetened beverages and sugary type foods and products. So when we look at this, it kind of takes the whole, I think, takes the whole scope of what we've been looking at and says, hey, here's an easy, easy to follow plan that can overall help you in terms of your health. So can you follow it if you're vegetarian? Sure. You can make the modifications. So you would just say, well, I don't want to do um, any of the lean meats and then I'm going to do more legumes to get your protein sources. Um, If you're a vegetarian and you will do dairy products, you can get your protein sources from there, get your calcium from there. So it, it can easily be adjusted for any individual.
0: Um, What about uh, beverages? Are you allowed to drink coffee?
1: Uh, Yeah, um, they don't really mention it. It's probably more, I would look at it in terms of what you're putting in your coffee and tea. So are you getting a latte or a mochaccino? (laughs) And what sugar content is that? Or are you getting black coffee and you're putting a small amount, maybe a dash of sugar in it? So what are you actually doing to that beverage? And I think that's the big thing, because when they talk about, we're talking about, added sugars it's what am i taking and what am i adding to that food am i taking hot tea and putting lemon in it which is great or am i taking tea and putting three teaspoons of sugar in it and then having five cups in a day
0: so when you talk about added sugars i think of soft drinks and Mm -hmm. and sodas Um, are diet sodas acceptable because they're not?
1: They don't mention this um, because, again, when you're looking at diet sodas, diet soda is something where there's not an added sugar source. So, again, from an individual standpoint, some people um, do not like any kind of sugar substitute as we call them and they want to go more towards the natural with the stevia which again a personal preference in terms of it but any of your low calorie diet type drinks as we would classify them are not going to have those added sugars so it's going to be you know seltzer water with natural flavorings those kinds of things so those would definitely be great
0: And I'm seeing seltzer waters on store shelves a lot more than I used to. A lot more. And
1: a lot more flavors and a lot more availability. I think that's something we have to get people used to because it's not a favorite product of people sometimes.
0: Right. But if you're trying to wean off or, or, you know, or Mm -hmm. water just gets boring after a while. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And even though we say put, you know, mints and fruits and different things and give it to people like some people I work with just don't like water. So you've got to look towards that substitute. Okay.
0: Now, in in terms, they say that this is healthy for all Americans. What about children, though? Is this a safe diet for kids?
1: Oh, I think so in terms of, because what are we looking at? Well, we're trying to get our children into more whole grains, we're trying to get them into more fruits and vegetables. So again, you could look at it from the perspective, um, what do I serve my kids for snacks? Well, if I've been doing cookies and, you know, other things, well maybe I'm going to do more fruits and vegetables and, you know, vegetables and dips. So um, not necessarily when we look at this, they they do break it out into calories. So with children, you wouldn't want to look at calories, but you would want to look at what am I doing for my kids? Am I giving them a good nutritious, are they getting enough fruits and vegetables? So I think as a guide for parents, it could be a great way to help your kids. Help improve their nutrition. Does it talk
0: about um, snacks and meals? And I mean, some diets, fad diets, you talk about, they you know, spread out the eating over multiple mm-hmm. tiny meals, does, does the DASH diet address that at all? Um,
1: they give you snack ideas. They actually have a one-week, it's called the DASH eating plan. So in the eating plan, they do give you breakfast, lunch, and dinner suggestions, and then they give you snack ideas. So they'll put things such as, okay, a half a cup of fruit and maybe a little bit of yogurt, or they'll put um, a half a cup of raisins, or they'll put some raw vegetables. So they do give you snack ideas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's up to the individual to, to look at, do I need a snack? And am I hungry for a snack? And my big question is always, why am I putting a snack in? Is it because I think I'm hungry? Or I'm eating with the TV? You know, I get into the mindful eating always. Um, and why am I having that snack? And then changing it. If, I, if you are having a snack and you say, yeah, I am hungry. Well, then look at how you can modify it and change it and improve your nutrition towards maybe more fruits and vegetables.
0: All right. And as far as calories, do they set uh, calorie goals? They have
1: ranges. So again, you can look at the ranges in terms of it. Um, There's an eating plan and it goes anywhere from 1,200 calories up to 3,100, pretty high. But you can look at, there's like a 1,600, 1,800 calorie. So you can look at those and say, hmm, and you know, pretty much I think a lot of people, we know what we are in terms of our calorie levels, or we might not even want to look at calorie levels. We might just want to say, oh, this is telling me on an average, when you look across the board, it's saying three to four fruits, and it's saying three to four vegetables. So even something as simple as that, you could start to say, wow, how many vegetables do I really have in a day? I have one. So could I go up to two to three? So again, what you're doing, you're hopefully replacing something that was maybe not the healthiest with more vegetables. Yet still giving yourself that volume.
0: Right. And you may find out you're able to eat so many more vegetables. Right. Than...
1: And then most people are like, wow, I feel more full and satisfied and I crunched, and I sometimes we're looking for that crunch, and I think so it's where vegetables can come in and help us.
0: Neat. Well, I've got some more questions, but let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Maureen Franklin, a registered dietitian, nutritionist at Upstate, and the topic today is the Dash Diet. So how easy is it for most people to follow the DASH diet? <laughs> the like,
1: question of the century. <laughs> <laughs> how easy is it? I think it could be easy. I think what we have to do is change our mindset and look at it in terms of first, what am I doing? Let's take a, an honest look at how you're eating, okay, you and your family. And if you look at this DASH plan, and again, as I say, the emphasis is fruits, vegetables, whole grains. What are you doing with your typical, typical intake, and how can you improve it? Is it work? It's always going to be work. You know, it's it's going towards probably more home cooking, getting fresher, frozen, you know, even canned vegetables, having that, doing menu planning, doing meal planning, those kinds of things. So um, I think it's difficult because I think we always want fast. And I think this is saying, we need to go back to some basics. We need to get some fruits and vegetables, and we need to know how to cook, you know, those seasonal root vegetables that are out. We need to know what to do. It's not just eat a banana. We need to know, well, what about parsnips, root vegetables, rutabaga, those kinds of things. So... I think it can be a struggle for for clients and and, pay, and people. Um, do I think they can do it? Yes, but I think they probably it's good to go it in small little steps and say where do I think I can make some changes that aren't like oh I can't do that. And I think that's probably to me the vegetables is probably one of the easiest ways to go.
0: So is that the advice you would give? What advice would you give to someone who wants to give it a try? Like how would they how would they start out vegetables?
1: I, yeah, I would think vegetables. I would also recommend that people do a food diary for a week an honest food diary for themselves and write down what they're eating what they're drinking what are they doing you know maybe even looking at their portions but then just looking at it from a, a perspective in terms of okay let's let's look at vegetables how many vegetables am I getting And then what kind of the vegetables? Is it corn or peas? Or is it salad, cucumbers, peppers, those kinds of things. And then from there, make one or two small changes. And okay, let's start taking carrot sticks for lunch. So let's, always have a vegetable for dinner, those kinds of things. I think those are the kinds of things that people could do and instead of thinking of it as a diet, which when we tend to think the quote diet, people are like, oh, here we go again. I think it's more, what can I do from a long-term lifestyle change?
0: Change, make new habits. Yeah, make new
1: habits. You know, get the kids used to saying, oh, you want a snack? Oh, I've got some carrot sticks. Oh, I've got celery with peanut butter. Um, this is what we have instead of, oh, here, have a bag of chips, those kinds of things. When you go out to eat, say, could I get a double of vegetables and instead of, you know, those fries, or don't put my fries on the plate. Could you have any carrot sticks? Pretty much carrot sticks seem to be in most kitchens, but we have to ask. So, I think that's it's those kinds of changes we have to want to make the changes too.
0: And there's um, a website, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute has a, a lot of information lot about of the information. Dash diet, right? Mm-hmm.
1: There's a booklet on it, there's, as they say, there's eating plans, there's a plan that you can look at again as a food diary type thing. What am I doing for lunch? And you can kind of check off, oh, I didn't have any vegetables for the past four days, those kinds of things. So, I think there's a lot of guides out there. It's just that I think people need to start looking at those and saying, all right this is what I'm doing. What do I want to change? All right.
0: And the website, nhlbinihgovernor We'll also have a link to that on the healthlinkonair.org website. Great. Now, um, when you talk DASH diet for reducing high blood pressure, makes me think about sodium intake because mm-hmm. that's an important part, right? Definitely. Definitely. So um, how hard is it to lower your sodium?
1: Well, again, I think it depends on where are you coming from. So, when we look at shopping, um, are you buying a lot of processed foods? So, what? typically happens with processed foods, they tend to be higher in the sodium. Are you buying the instant product? Are you buying the instant rice, the instant oatmeal, those kinds of things? Um, Are you buying more um, things like bacon, ham, deli type meats, bologna, those kinds of things? So I think from the shopping standpoint, you can start taking a a look at what's on the label. You can start informing yourself in terms of the levels of sodium in those foods. Um, You can look at how do you use salt? Do you add it a lot? Do you automatically not taste your food and salt It before and do you use herbs? Do you use spices? What kinds of things can you change in terms of? um, And then again, when we look at fruits and vegetables, natural, not a high level of sodium. It's a great natural foods in terms of that. It's usually what we put on. You know, we take something, we add cheese sauce to the broccoli and instead could I add a little lemon could I add a little dill to those green beans those kinds of things Um, so yes again I think there's a great amount of things that people can do to help with the sodium level but it's looking at again what am I doing so okay I'm doing high processed foods well let's start getting some more frozen foods very good source in terms of it's still quick and easy, pop it in the microwave. But, all right, let's start introducing it that way. Let's cook my own rice. Let's not do an instant rice. Let's cook my own oatmeal. Um, I don't want to do steel cuts. That's okay. Do regular oatmeal. A little bit better for you. You're making it. You control the amount of sodium in it.
0: And it seems like when you start looking at food labels, sodium is in everything. Pretty much. Yeah. So, um anyway so let's talk about the vegetables that are the best choices because okay. um, some vegetables are better than others right?
1: I feel because again when I'm looking at I'm looking at dark green leafy vegetables I'm looking at the onions, the peppers, the mushrooms, the zucchini, the green beans, the wax beans, all those kinds. I'm not tending to look at from my standpoint as a dietitian I'm not looking so much as the corn, the lima beans, the peas, the mixed vegetables. The mixed vegetables that are broccoli, cauliflower, carrots, yes I love those. Um, the new thing in terms of the cauliflower rice another great thing that's introduced and it's frozen you can just Buy it, boom, it's in the microwave. Um, how can and it's I use a good them? substitute for, for rice? Yeah, for rice, mashed potatoes. Um, they've had, I know people have done like cauliflower pizzas in terms of it, all those kinds of things. Um, so I think those kinds of vegetables are the great ones in terms. Nothing wrong with the corn and the peas, but I like the other ones more because, again, they tend to be lower in the carbs, great fiber, lower in the calories. And I think there's such an, an abundance that we have. We have so many great varieties that we can get at our grocery store. Once someone starts following the DASH diet, how soon till they would see some effects? That I'm not sure of in terms of, so I'm not sure. So that's, again, where a monitoring, if you're working with your physician, what you'd want to say is, okay, you're concerned about my blood pressure. Let's let's see what I am. What's my blood pressure? Can you give me three to four months to see this and let's see if I can change that and then look at that? Because I think it's an individualized thing. We don't really know in terms of like, oh, you're going to be on the DASH diet, so you're going to reduce your, you know, so many points in terms of your blood pressure. So I think that individualization and giving yourself enough time to get these habits at least started, not think oh, I've been doing it for two weeks. Why is my blood pressure down? It's like when people think of weight loss, it's like give it time. Give those habits time to grow and to solidify.
0: Ah, Well, thank you so much for the information. My guest has been registered dietitian nutritionist, Maureen Franklin. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink On Air. Coming up next... How emergency physicians are helping prevent opioid overdoses. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Communities across the country are grappling with the opioid epidemic, and medical professionals are involved. On HealthLink air, we've talked with a variety of experts from those helping revive people who've overdosed to those helping people kick the addiction. And today, we have an associate professor of emergency medicine with us to talk about the role emergency doctors play in preventing overdoses, particularly those from opioids. Dr. Jay Brenner is here. He's the medical director for Upstate's Community Campus Emergency Department. Thank you for being here.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I'd like to give uh, listeners a sense of how big of an issue this is for hospital emergency departments. Um, You said 2% of patients?
2: Yes. In our three emergency departments at Upstate, our adult, pediatric, and community campus emergency departments, we saw over 100,000 patients total in the 2017 year. Of those, greater than 2,000 of those patient visits were for opiate abuse or dependency.
0: So what's the difference between abuse and dependency?
2: Abuse is what you would typically think of as an overdose. Someone who has used opiates past their recommended dosage or illicit opiates, such as heroin or fentanyl, and has come into the emergency department because they need to be rescued from the consequences of their overdose. Dependency is more uh, analogous to addiction someone who chronically uses opiates and is dependent upon them, either psychologically or physiologically, and either is presenting to the emergency department with symptoms of withdrawal, looking for treatment, or with some symptoms and signs of dependency and needs to uh, be encouraged to seek treatment.
0: So do all of these patients arrive Like by ambulance as an emergency, or you get some that that come in, family members bring them, I assume?
2: Right. So it's all across the board. So some are uh, presenting by EMS arrival, and some are presenting um, by private vehicle.
0: And in terms of um, the amount of time and um, the care that these patients need, are they typically in the emergency department for a while?
2: Yes. The standard overdose patient spends six hours in observation in our emergency department. Some patients are so critically ill that they need to be admitted to the intensive care unit and supported uh, with life support. Uh, Those patients actually tend to uh, spend less time in the emergency department as long as we have capacity to manage them in the hospital. And then there are patients who are more well than those who require six hour observations because they have withdrawal symptoms or dependence and they can be addressed more quickly even in a uh, minor treatment area. But we, we see, uh, on the whole, longer stays in the emergency department uh, for our patients who come in with overdose.
0: All right. Well, you make the case that um, the role emergency doctors play in preventing overdose, particularly opiates, um, is threefold, crisis management, treatment, and prevention. So let's talk about each of those individually. Um, what is What do you mean by crisis management?
2: Sure. I'd like to give credit to Dr. Gupta, the Onondaga County uh, Public Health Commissioner who has been uh, crafting and pitching this three-pronged approach. Crisis management refers to naloxone access. And so when patients do overdose on opiates, uh, it is critically important to save their lives by administering naloxone quickly.
0: This is the drug that can reverse an overdose?
2: Yes. And I know that your audience has heard from Dr. Egglestrom from the Poison Control Center uh, about the use of naloxone. What we can do in the emergency department is ensure that patients who uh, come in with overdose are given naloxone quickly, but we can also ensure that patients with either abuse or dependency who are discharged from our emergency department are sent home with a naloxone kit that the state has provided funding for at our downtown campus or uh, with a prescription at our community campus.
0: And that would be for someone in their life to have on hand if they were to overdose again? Exactly. Is that the thinking, to have it in the home or something?
2: Exactly. Because first, we're committed uh, as uh, safety net uh, healthcare professionals to save lives. Uh, Secondly, uh, we should provide treatment. So if someone comes in with opiate withdrawal, we have the ability to give one dose of buprenorphine, which can help alleviate opiate withdrawal symptoms, and then to refer to a medical assisted treatment provider such as the Bridge Clinic run by Dr. Sullivan, our emergency physician who is additionally trained in medical toxicology and board certified as well in addiction medicine. And that is a place that uh, patients can receive short term prescriptions for medical assisted treatment for buprenorphine or methadone, and then eventually get into a longer term arrangement for uh, rehab. And I think that um, it is an obligation of emergency physicians to uh, offer that treatment and referral.
0: So you mentioned the Bridge Clinic. Um, So that is something someone could go to as a referral from the emergency department?
2: Yes, from all three of our emergency departments. It is something that Dr. Uh, Sullivan initiated in November of 2016, And the post-standard gave him good press on this in 2017, leading to an influx of patients, which we then responded by uh, supporting him with a nurse practitioner uh, to extend his practice, who uh, was partially funded by the Upstate Foundation.
0: And so the whole uh, purpose behind this is to help people get off Or to not be addicted to the medication or opioids. Yes.
2: First, we have to save lives. Then we have to get patients off of their opiates. And thirdly, and most broadly and importantly, we need to prevent the abuse and dependency that exists. And we can be partners in prevention by thinking carefully about prescribing narcotics?
0: Well I, I definitely want to ask you about prevention, but before we go too far there, um, is it because it strikes me um, you know if you're if you're giving patients who leave the emergency department after an overdose, you're giving them naloxone in case it happens again. Isn't it dangerous to have it repeated? I mean, I've heard of patients that return in the same day multiple overdoses. Isn't that exponentially more dangerous for the person?
2: Yes. I became medical director at the community campus emergency department in 2015. Simultaneously, 2015 was the highest year of opiate deaths in this country as ever before. It exceeded HIV/AIDS epidemic at its peak. It exceeded deaths from trauma, including motor vehicle collisions and penetrating trauma. And at the same time, Krauss Hospital closed its inpatient detox unit. And so. I took it upon myself to do whatever I could as the director of the emergency department to afford all opportunities for patients suffering from opiate addiction to get treatment. I extended myself to the Syracuse Behavioral Health uh, Service, which has expanded its ability to take care of patients. However, there is still a limit on what they and others like them can do. There are some patients who are so ill that they do need an inpatient hospitalization. We do not have an option for that in central New York. I'd like there to be one. There is now a new option for patients who are addicted to opiates, but also suffering from infectious diseases such as endocarditis, which is a heart valve infection, or osteomyelitis, which is a bone infection.
0: And those are related to opioid They are related
2: to clean needles not being clean enough Mm -hmm. and getting bloodstream infections. There's now an option that has been funded um, with a grant uh, at St. Camillus in partnership with Upstate that Dr. Endy, the chair of our microbiology immunology um, department, has spearheaded along with Theresa Baxter, a nurse practitioner uh, who supports our pain service, uh, to have patients there for their IV antibiotics, as well as for psychological and psychiatric substance abuse treatment. But for the general population who does not yet have a bloodborne infection that has very difficult opiate addiction, we do not yet have a in-hospital inpatient option. So in the meantime, um, I will do and encourage all the uh, health professionals I, I work with and supervise to offer the, the most that we can. And that includes, by the way, in the emergency department setting, a social work evaluation to screen for uh, substance abuse.
0: Okay. All right. Um, let me remind listeners this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Jay Brenner, the medical director for Upstate's Community Campus Emergency Department and an associate professor of emergency medicine. Um, so, now I'd like to talk about the role of the emergency physician in terms of prevention because you don't usually think of an emergency doctor in terms of preventive health care. Um, so, what, is, what role do they play in that?
2: You know, I think there's a good analogy to smoking cessation, if I can dovetail for just a minute. It really became evident to us that catching people when they're at their sickest for counseling is sometimes when you can catch people most willing to reconsider their lifestyle choices. And so it is incumbent upon us to consider the opportunity we have when patients are at their sickest to not only take care of them and stabilize them, but also to give them the best anticipatory guidance. We are often confronted with patients who have painful conditions in the emergency department. Pain management is something that we do on a daily basis. Seeking alternatives to opiates is critical to prevention of opiate abuse and dependency. In fact, there's there's guidelines out there that We're started at St. Joseph's Hospital in Patterson, New Jersey, that have inspired a congressional legislation to support the use of these guidelines. I gave these guidelines to my providers at our last monthly meeting, and uh, they've been uploaded into our EPIC uh, electronic medical record as guidance within our clinical operations section.
0: So are these other medicines that help with pain control?
2: Exactly, and some of these are old familiar strategies: using acetaminophen and nonsteroidal anti-inflammatories like toralac to manage things from kidney stone pain to back pain. Uh, some of them are more novel uses of of medications like ketamine, which is known as an anesthetic in lower doses can be an analgesic. Uh, and some uh, of the guidelines include other local anesthetics used in regional nerve blocks and trigger point injections. So it's really expanding our capabilities uh, to meet what has become, as we all know, a public health emergency.
0: So when you um, have to give someone a pain medicine or or they need a pain medicine, do you find patients who are resistant who say, I don't want that because I don't want to get addicted? Do you see that?
2: Yes, absolutely. And the guidance of start low and go slow is counterintuitive to an emergency physician who usually is focused on taking care, it, of take care of the it. sickest possible problem first. Right. But with pain management, I think it's advisable. And the patient population is quite well versed in this epidemic. There is an interest from young to old at avoiding opiate usage and many patients have tried opiates, and they don't like the effects. And importantly, when we do prescribe opiates in patients who it is indicated, we ought to be very communicative about the side effects.
0: What are the side effects?
2: Well, you know, in the short term, um, really uh, the uh, drug-drug interactions uh, with other uh, medicines that may sedate um, could, could couple um, there's constipating effects um, from opiates that, you know, especially you know when you have patients with abdominal pain, perhaps related to constipation or something else, could 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 worsen that. Um, and and then we have to discuss the side effects of addiction. Um, the rates are still being tabulated. To be frank, um, I think they used to be uh, mentioned as one percent uh, by pharmaceutical industry. And as a result, the pharmaceutical industry uh, is uh, many of the companies are undergoing uh, a, legis- a, a um, litigation uh, ca- class action suit that Onondaga County is um, uh, also involved in um, at misrepresenting the addiction potential. It may be as high as four percent, ten percent, depends who you read and who you talk to. Um, but you know, advising patients that that is a possibility is critically important.
0: Wow, well, it's good to know that emergency physicians are thinking about this and doing something. My guest has been Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine, Dr. Jay Brenner. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink On Air. Next up, what you need to know about otolaryngology. On Upstate's HealthLink on Air. University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Otolaryngology is the oldest medical specialty in the United States. It's the specialty that's focused on diseases and disorders of the ears, nose, and throat, plus related structures of the head and neck. Today we're going to explore this specialty with Dr. Sherard Tatum. He's a professor of otolaryngology and pediatrics who's the interim chair of the department. He also is the medical director for cleft and cranial facial surgery, and he directs facial plastic and reconstructive surgery at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Tatum. Thank you. So I noticed on your biography that your education and training is extensive. so I wanted to start by asking you to explain um, after medical school, what was your training and what, what was included in your training?
3: I did uh, two years of general surgery residency, three years of otolaryngology head and neck surgery residency a year of cranio surgery in Germany, and another year of facial plastic and reconstructive surgery in California.
0: Wow, so that's uh, seven or eight years, years in yeah. addition to medical school. So Wow. And then um, pediatrics is part of that? In your situation, you're
3: also... Certainly, uh, pediatric otolaryngology is a, is a major component of otolaryngology, and uh, it, it delves into some of the more... Um, difficult problems that children can have with um, their airway and feeding and ear disease.
0: Okay. So tell me about the history of otolaryngology, because um, I read that it's the oldest medical
3: specialty. It's been around since the 1800s. There was a society called the Triological, uh, which uh, was a combination of otology, rhinology, and laryngology. And although the specialty is otolaryngology, which is Latin for ear and throat, uh, a lot of people refer to it as otorhinolaryngology to include the nose. Uh, We were the second specialty to join the American Board of Medical Specialties back in 1926. And we were actually um, partnered with ophthalmology for about 50 years. And then in uh, 1977, uh, we, we separated and became two totally separate specialties. But in the old days, we were eye, ear, nose, and throat. Why did they put the eye together? Just because of proximity? I think it was just, yeah, it was similar um, sort of instrumentation and, um, and uh, anatomic proximity. Um, but in the 70s, it, it just became too much for to learn all of what you needed to know to be good with the eyes and to be good with the ear, nose, and throat. So that's why it's separated.
0: Well, that makes sense. Well, I want to talk um, about what the common problems that an otolaryngologist would take care of, because there's a, a wide array. Um, so let's start out with otology. Is that part of... Sure.
3: O- otolaryngology is uh, a term, a Latin term that includes uh, ear and throat, and some some places refer to themselves as otorhinolaryngologists. Uh, otology uh, would be the... Uh, subspecialty dealing with problems of the ear. neurootology is even a a subspecialty of that. And they include problems with hearing, um, balance, uh, ringing in the ears, uh, tumors and uh, inflammation, infection of the ear and temporal bone, which is the part of the skull where the ear lives.
0: And some of those, it sounds like might be, um, I don't know, acute issues and some may be more of a long-term thing, Right.
3: Sure. Uh, There are um, definitely acute and chronic versions of many um, disorders of the ear.
0: And then you mentioned neuro-autology. Neuro deals with nerves, right?
3: Right. That's dealing with um, the area behind the middle ear where you have the connection of the uh, hearing mechanism and balance mechanisms to the brain. And there can be uh, tumors and... uh, chronic inflammatory problems that get that far in that need very highly specialized care.
0: All right, and then rhinology,
3: that's? The study of the nose or nose. the care of the nose, and that would be include sinuses and allergy. And rhinology has uh, developed tremendously in the last 20 years. Uh, rhinologists are now able to do uh, brain surgery through the nose, and there are many uh, tumors uh, and other types of conditions that can be dealt with uh, endoscopically through the nose that uh, once required the head to be opened up.
0: Wow. Interesting. Okay. And then laryngology, the throat.
3: Laryngology, uh, the throat, it also includes bronchoesophagology. And that's basically the voice box, the upper airway and the throat and the swallowing mechanism, the esophagus and pharynx. So uh, the things that you're mentioning, um, it, occurs to me that there,
0: there might be a lot of overlap with other medical specialties. When you talk about breathing, I think of pulmonology. Sure. If, is there a lot of collaboration or how does that get worked
3: out? We do uh, work very frequently with pulmonologists and with thoracic surgeons. Uh, our um, area sort of ends at the clavicles or the, the collarbones. But we frequently perform diagnostic endoscopies that uh, go further down, and we we will uh, often do those in conjunction with uh, a pulmonologist or a thoracic surgeon. And then in the esophagus, we work with the gastroenterologist.
0: Okay.
3: And we work with the pediatric specialists of of all of those also.
0: In the central New York region, the patients that you see here, um, which ones uh, are the most, do you see the most of?
3: Well, that's a kind of a tough question. We we have such a broad... Uh, we see a lot of trauma. Uh, we see a lot of uh, children with um, sort of routine problems, uh, tonsils, adenoids, ear tubes, a lot of sinus conditions, um, a fair amount of head and neck cancer. And so in my line of work, a, f- a fair amount of uh, birth defects of the face, head and neck.
0: Okay, great. Well, um, primary care providers probably see, a, see and treat a lot of patients with ear infections, sinus problems, and such, at what point do they generally refer a patient to an ear, nose, and throat specialist?
3: It usually comes down to um, the success in managing the problem uh, or the recurrence of it or the uh, longevity of the problem. Um, Frequently, uh, a few sore throats or ear infections or sinus infections are easily managed by primary care. But once it becomes recurrent and uh, starting to really impact the, the patient's life uh, or chronic in the sense that they can't ever get it to clear up, then that's often uh, when uh, specialty referral is, is valuable.
0: All right. Do you have, um, for someone who has an appointment coming up with an ear and nose and throat doctor, their primary care has set up an appointment, do you have any advice for um, how the patient can best prepare for that appointment?
3: Well, I think with any uh, any medical appointment, it's uh, very useful for the patient to review their own medical history and make sure they come with all the information that's needed, their allergies, their medications, their previous medical problems and surgeries, any imaging studies or, or lab work that's already been done, and, and really review in their heads the, the history of the problem they're coming for, when it started, how uh, how bad is it? Is it intermittent or continuous? Are there things that make it better or worse? All, those are all very useful to a, a specialist.
0: All right, good to know. Well, I've got some more questions, but let me remind listeners. this is Upstate's Health link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith and I'm talking with Otolaryngologist and cleft and cranial facial surgery expert, Dr. Sherard Tatum. Um, you mentioned there's some other things too that your nose and throat specialists do. Um, head and neck surgery, facial plastic and reconstructive surgery, and and things of that nature. Is that a big part of your
3: day? It's a huge part of my day, um, and uh, that's mostly uh, what I do. Um, basically, otolaryngology um, envelops everything above the shoulders, uh, except for the uh, the eyeball and the brain. So, uh, any um, trauma or cancer uh, or congenital defects of the face, head, and neck are within uh, my purview. And uh, we can usually um, improve the appearance and function of people that have those kind of problems.
0: Do you see a lot of cancerous tumors?
3: I I have partners that actually see the tumors. And then once the tumor has been removed, I come in and repair the defect and try to restore function and appearance.
0: I was going to ask about um, the most gratifying part of your work, and it seems like a good part of your work is surgical.
3: Yes, it is. Um, certainly the children. There's um, The most gratifying thing is to see a young uh, set of parents uh, see their child after their cleft lip has been repaired and uh, see the, the baby's face restored to uh, something that they're really very happy about.
0: And that's a subspecialization within this is uh, cleft... Palate repair, right?
3: Yeah, that was what those extra two years after otolaryngology training were for me, was to learn the congenital reconstructive work.
0: Now, how common is that? It's a birth defect, right?
3: The clefts, they're around uh, one in six or 700 births.
0: Okay. So you probably, how many do you do in a year in the Syracuse area?
3: Maybe about 40, 50. Um, We're the main referral center for that. Uh, in central New York, uh, we, um, between Rochester and Albany, they have cleft centers themselves.
0: And how soon does a baby um, need to have the surgery after they're born? Is it something that's urgent to get done
3: in the first year? or What's urgent usually is managing their feeding needs. A lot of children with uh, clefts have trouble feeding. So we like to see them as soon after birth as possible to... Um, gauge their uh, feeding abilities. Uh, the cleft makes it hard for them to suck. Um, but the repair is not necessarily done right away, usually somewhere in the first one to three months for a cleft lip and then in the first year for a cleft palate.
0: And is it um, typically one surgery that can fix? One the surgery for the lip,
3: or one or two, and uh, one or two for the palate. It depends on the extent of the, of the clefting.
0: All right. Now, you're the um, interim chair of the department um, for your Nose, and Throat. That's correct. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about how the field of otolaryngology has changed since you got out of medical school?
3: Yes. When I was uh, um, just starting residency, endoscopic work was just beginning, uh, endoscopic sinus surgery. And w- what's endoscopic? is this, uh- a telescope in the nose that allows us to very precisely uh remove tissue and open sinus openings and, and things like that, that we used to do with the naked eye. Ah. And things like lasers have uh, developed dramatically uh, over the, uh, that time period. Um, the approach to head and neck cancer has changed a lot. Uh, the management of uh, allergy has uh, improved significantly. So there's more um, options to offer for
0: allergy sufferers? And... Yes. Um, I was also going to ask, are there diseases or disorders that you're seeing a lot more of or a lot less of
3: these days? Well, uh, going back to trauma, airbags have uh, reduced the amount of uh, vehicular trauma, uh, but there's still quite a bit of it. Um, the management of some of the... Uh, Infectious problems uh, have improved and reduced the amount of surgery needed to to do to take care of them.
0: Okay, yeah, you mentioned airbags and you've mentioned trauma um, quite a bit. It, the, are you called in when there's um, like a traffic accident and someone has suffered just facial trauma, right?
3: Yes. Well, uh, as you might imagine, many people who have been in traffic accidents suffer multiple injuries. So. The face might be part of it, the the head, the chest, the abdomen, the legs, arms, all that can be involved in a a major car wreck.
0: So you'd be part of a team. There'd be other doctors
3: working on different parts. Yes.
0: Okay, interesting. So that adds, um, in terms of a physician's life, that adds you've got some urgent on-call work, you've got scheduled surgery too, you've got office visits, a little bit of everything in this specialty, right? Yeah, we
3: can be very busy.
0: Okay. Um, is this an area that you're seeing interest in from students? Are they going into otolaryngology? Yeah, otolaryngology
3: is um, still one of the most competitive residencies for the medical students. And uh, it it's, as you might gather from what we've talked about so far, it's uh, very interesting. It offers a broad array of, of specialty uh, interests. You, you can sort of generalize and and try to do a little bit of everything, or you can sub-specialize in some of these areas we've talked about.
0: Wow. Well, it's nice to know that that's available here um, in central New York. Like you said, you draw patients from many counties around, Mm -hmm. so um, that's a a nice resource to have available. I appreciate you coming in to talk with me about this. Sure. Uh, My guest has been Dr. Sherard Tatum. He's the interim chair for the Department of Otolaryngology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's Podcast and Talk Show, Health Link on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
4: Oh, to live with a poet who loves you, could anything be better? Listen to two poets whose poems reassure their beloveds, imperiled by illness, that they are not alone. First is Jennifer L. Freed, whose work appears in JAMA and the Common Ground Review. Here is her poem, *Air*. When you called to tell me about the tumors the doctor felt in your womb today, I thought of the way you turned toward me when I come home at night, that light in your eyes, the ease of your smile. And then I saw the curve of your arm at the piano, heard the familiar phrases of your play, mere movement of air, singing of you, and how the air eddies and lifts when you walk into my study, bringing fresh tea. And how the air shifts to fill the stillness when you walk away without talk, without wanting talk to disturb my work. I thought of this house without you breathing in it, rooms undisturbed by anyone but me. And there I turned away from thought. There I could not bear to dwell. Next, is psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry and ethics, Ronald Pies, who has written several books on psychiatry, ethics, and spirituality, in addition to his poetry chapbook, The Myeloma Years. Here is his poem, Lady of the Lake. Our lake is warm in her shallows this blue July, her shore a tangle of thick milfoil. A mother merganser and her chicks parade along the pier, and largemouth bass brush against our legs. This was where you couldn't swim last year. After the transplant, the lake's microbes were your marrow's nemesis. A mile up the road, the beach is closed by a surge of blue-green algae. An official sign warns, treat every algal bloom as a threat to health and life. 30 years now you've been my wife. Today, I watch you slice through clear water with Olympian strokes beaming your summer camp smile. I dog paddle behind you, eyes peeled for blue-green blooms as I beg the lake for her benediction.
0: In Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org, or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.